Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I would be lost without my smartphone. I use it for directions, to find things to do, and most importantly, where to eat. I rely on it as a digital music player to enhance my experience as I explore a new place. Oh, and sometimes I even use it to make calls and stuff. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are you? Okay, so to really understand this episode, you should really listen to yesterday's episode and get up to speed. But just in brief, to cover what I talked about yesterday, I explained what patents are for, and I gave a short explanation of how patents and patent law got started in the United States, keeping in mind that other countries had already had their own patent laws at that time. It's not like the United States invented patent law. And I talked about how in 1790, the young government of the young United States established patent law, which initially was incredibly strict. And then it did a 180 and became the opposite. Uh, I mean, like the first year of issuing patents, the U.S. only granted three patents total. And then in 1793... A big revision to the law meant that the office was technically supposed to approve any and all patents as long as they had the proper application fee. So just from one extreme to the other. I concluded yesterday's episode by talking about the first superintendent of the U.S. Patent Office, a doctor named William Thornton. And now we're going to pick up with his successor, Thomas Jones, another physician. So Jones 
changed how some things worked at the patent office, including a change that carries through to modern patents today. That being that he started the specification of the invention was allowed to reference the accompanying sketches of that invention. It's kind of hard to even imagine that there was a time where this wasn't the case, where you would have a sketch and or a model, almost definitely a model, but probably a sketch too, and a set of specifications, but they didn't reference one another. That changed with Jones's tenure as superintendent. If you read over a modern patent, you'll often see that there will be a sketch that's frequently labeled with several parts that are called out like part A or part B, or sometimes they're numbered or whatever. And then the actual specification will reference those parts and explain how they work within the grander functionality of the invention. So Jones, like Dr. Thornton before him, felt that patent applications definitely needed to meet a threshold of usefulness and inventiveness. So both of them had expressed concern that stripping that power away from the patent office meant that folks would file patents for stuff that was already in existence or that they just plain didn't work. So both Jones and Thornton ignored that revision to the patent law that that dated back to 1793, that that bit saying, hey, you don't have the right to reject patents. They both said, you know what? I kind of do. I know the government says I don't, but I disagree with that. So they took a much harder stance on patents that, uh, uh, you know, either failed to describe a new invention or were deemed to not meet the threshold of usefulness or both. William Elliott, who was Dr. Thornton's chief assistant, uh, he had felt that he should have been promoted to superintendent. And he was deeply upset when it's instead went to Thomas Jones. So he then accused Jones of having opened all the mail that was being sent to the patent office himself. Now, you might say, well, what's the big deal with that? Why shouldn't the superintendent open the mail that's sent to the patent office? Well, according to Elliot, his accusation was that sometimes people would stuff application envelopes with filthy lucre. That is, you know, they would put cash in their application in an effort to grease the wheels of bureaucracy. Essentially, they would include a bribe with their application. So Elliot said that before Thomas Jones took over as superintendent, the patent office had it as a matter of fact that any money that was sent in this way would be returned to sender. And that way you avoid impropriety, right? You're not taking bribes. But since Thomas Jones was demanding that he be allowed to open all the mail personally, the implication was that he was possibly pocketing this money, that he was essentially taking bribes. Now, whether that accusation had any merit or not, or whether the fact that Jones had a dispute with Elliot because his sons were running a business out of the patent office, one of Elliot's sons was a freelance draftsman and was working out of the patent office. And so there's the possibility that that Thomas Jones was having words with his chief clerk because he felt it was inappropriate for the clerk's sons to be able to run a business out of the patent office. That's not what the patent office was for. But I don't know if that's the reason why this all blew up. I do know that ultimately Thomas Jones received a reassignment. He moved on to work in a different office within the U.S. government. However, William Elliott didn't like 
get to do a victory lap because he was also told he had to vacate his position. However, his son was able to retain his, his freelance draftsman job at the patent office. Uh, that son was named William Parker Elliott. So you had William Elliott and William Parker Elliott. And as a draftsman, he would work with inventors to create the sketches of their invention as part of their patent application. And he would charge the inventors a fee for doing this. So that was how he was making his living as part of this process for patents. He'll figure more in our tale as we continue this journey through the history of the patent office, which y'all, if you read over histories of the patent office, it sounds like it would be the most boring thing in the world, right? But as you read about these interpersonal conflicts, uh, you start to think like, wow, this is more Game of Thrones than I expected it to be. <laughs> well, anyway, our next superintendent was John D. Craig. He would serve as the superintendent from 1829 to 1835. Craig was, let's call him a divisive figure. So according to historian Kenneth Dobbins, Craig was, quote, arrogant, subject to rages, disagreeable to patent applicants and their agents, and a domineering tyrant toward the subordinate employees of the patent office, end quote. So Craig inherited an office that was really short on cash. Like, according to Craig's own calculations, the patent office was short to the tune of around $4,000. And keep in mind, this is 1829. He suspected Hanky and or Panky had been going on, but he didn't find any evidence of it. Like he thought maybe one of his predecessors, perhaps Dr. Thornton, had been embezzling money from the patent office, but he couldn't find any evidence supporting that hypothesis. Now, it's also true that during his tenure, when Dr. Thornton was the first superintendent, he would often request that Congress increase funding to the patent office, but Congress kind of ignored him. For the most part, uh, this would become something of a time honored tradition for many years. The patent office would argue it needed more funding and no one would seem to care that much at that point. So Craig had a different approach to granting patents than Thornton and Jones did. So his predecessors had felt like a patent review was a vital part of the process, that it really needed to happen. Craig felt the most important part was that the applicant paid their application fee. And if that happened, well, then we're good to go. It just, you know, stamp approved on those patent applications if the fee comes in. So Craig wasn't so fussed about patent specifications and rarely, if ever, even bothered to read them, according to contemporary reports. He was adhering to that change in patent law, the one that dated all the way back to 1793. And if any disputes arose due to a patent being, say, a copy of another invention that had already received a patent or any other problem like that, well, that was a matter for the courts. It wasn't a matter for the patent office. So he was like, nope, we're going to follow the law and get all those fees and not worry whether or not the thing we're granting a patent for actually works or if it's new. He did, however, find the lack of organization in the office appalling. So he created a system in which he classified inventions according to subject matter, specifically for all the models of the invention. So like models that were designed to do things like farm work would be grouped together, that sort of thing. So he did bring a, a certain kind of organization system to the patent process. Remember, at this stage, the patents that were being granted and the applications that were being submitted, none of them were being numbered. There was no numbering system with patents at this point. So 
as they were starting to mount up in the thousands, it was getting more and more difficult to keep everything sorted and organized. In a little bit of foreshadowing, Craig also sought a sizable grant for the office for the purposes of constructing a fireproof building into which the patent office would then move because he said, you know, it would be disastrous if there were a fire because we have all these models and stuff. We don't have copies of these patents. It would be a huge loss. So Congress surprisingly actually voted to fund the project. But before that could happen, before the building could be built, Craig found himself at the center of an investigation. An employee at the patent office had argued that Craig was ill-suited for his position and that he should be dismissed from it. That employee was the son of William Elliot, also named William Elliot, you know, William Parker Elliot. So why did Billy Jr. take aim at Craig? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Elliot the Younger was a freelance draftsman for the patent office. And Craig had ended up hiring one of his former students. He had been a teacher in the past, and one of his students had become a draftsman. So Craig hired this former student to come and work at the patent office as essentially another freelance draftsman. But that meant that the student was a competitor to Elliot Jr. And so, like his father before him, Elliot II filed a complaint against his boss. And it worked. So allegedly, President Andrew Jackson himself signed the dismissal papers in 1835, and J.D. Craig had to leave as superintendent of the patent office. The Elliots continued in their role as kingmakers, or at the very least as superintendent destroyers. Okay, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll pick up with the next superintendent of the patent office. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed. And I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. 
three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, so J.D. Craig is out. He's been dismissed from his position as superintendent of the patent office. So who next leads the office? That would be James Chamberlain Pickett. What a fantastic name. He was a veteran of the War of 1812, and he would become the penultimate superintendent for the patent office in February of 1835. But he only stuck around for three months. He was not the superintendent for very long at all. He actually resigned his position because an opportunity opened up in the Department of Treasury, and he thought, that looks like it's better work for me. So I don't have very much to say about him as leader of the office because he wasn't around very long in that capacity. But then we get to our final superintendent of the U.S. Patent Office, a guy named Henry L. Ellsworth. Another great name. He was said to be methodical and meticulous. He whipped the office into shape. Uh, Where there had been chaos, he instituted order, and he would serve as superintendent until 1836. But he remained the leader of the patent office until 1845. So how is that possible? How could he be superintendent until 1836, but lead the office till 1845? Well, it's because in 1836, the U.S. government changed its approach to patent law again. Actually, this time, the government essentially scrapped all existing patent law and started over. So once more, clerks had the legal authority to screen patent applications and to deny applications that were, you know, uh, for an obvious invention or a copy of something that already existed or otherwise failed to qualify for a patent. Since 1793, they technically didn't have the right to do that. 1836, they get the right to do it again. The length of protection for a patent expanded from 14 years to 21 years at that point. Now, this would change several times over the years. I'm not going to go over every single change in patent law. That would just be exhausting and and not really that interesting. I will say that, that currently, patent law allows for 20 years of protection from the date that the patent is issued, and then you are also able to file for an extension of up to five more years. Anyway, 
1836 Act officially established a patent office as a division of the State Department. No longer would there be a superintendent in charge. Instead, the head of the patent office would now hold the title of commissioner. So you might say, well, that's a kind of fine point, but it's it's true. The Ellsworth was the last superintendent, but he was also the first commissioner of the patent office because the title changed while he was holding that position. And he took his duties really seriously. Uh, One of those was that for all new incoming patents, the office would assign a number to that patent. Finally, we get to patent numbering, where we actually can see the chronological sequence of patents that were granted. Uh, The very first patent, in case you're curious, patent number one was for a new design for locomotive wheels, as filed by one John Ruggles. The changes to patent law happened in the summer of 1836, but it was the winter of 1836 where we would see another massive change happen to patents, this time not because of legislative maneuvers, but because of a disaster. So, on December 15th, 1836, the worst case scenario for the patent office happened. There was a fire in the patent office. And it was a massive fire that essentially wiped out all the patents, the models, and the drafts that had been made since 1790. Now, at this time, the patent office occupied a section of the Blodgett Hotel, which also had a couple of other tenants in it, right? You had the U.S. Post Office. But ironically, the other big organization that had a a space in the Blodgett Hotel was a fire department. And as Steve Martin would say in the documentary Roxanne, we're supposed to be putting them out. But seriously, the cause of the fire was due to a really dumb practice that the U.S. Post Office workers were following. All right, so let's set the scene. It's December. It's Washington, D.C. Things can get really cold. So to keep warm, some of the offices had wood-burning stoves where you would, you know, put some wood in the stove and burn it in order to generate heat and keep the office comfortable. So at the end of the workday, the postal office workers would collect the ashes from their wood stove, and then they would bring those ashes down into the basement, and they would store them in a box at the basement of the Blodgett Hotel, and the box was made out of wood. And I think you can probably see where this is going. So... On that night in December of 1836, the ashes that they dumped in this wooden box were still hot. There still had some coals inside those ashes. Those coals ultimately set fire to the wooden box, and the wooden box happened to be right next to the post office's supply of firewood in the basement. Really convenient, right? So the fire grew. And in the wee hours of the morning, people began to notice that something was amiss at the Blodgett Hotel. As for the fire department, it had equipment, but it didn't have any firefighters because the firefighter force was a volunteer force. And for reasons I'm not aware of, I need to look into it further. But apparently earlier they had faced such a discouraging experience that they disbanded. So there was no actual firefighting force in that fire department. So the fire ended up spreading 
mainly to the areas that were inhabited by the patent office. And they destroyed thousands of documents and models and sketches. The post office actually got off pretty lightly. Uh, their documents were in a separate section of the Blodgett Hotel. And so post office workers were actually able to get in there and rescue important stuff from the post office before the flames could spread there. Now, early on, some folks suspected that the fire was actually arson, that someone had set it on purpose. And the reason was that the U.S. government was currently in the middle of an investigation into the post office itself. There were various charges of corruption that were playing out with the U.S. post office. So rumors began to spread that maybe this was actually an effort to remove evidence by burning it. That, that someone working at the post office, perhaps a leader, had decided to try and do this in an effort to confound the investigation. But since the actual fire ended up impacting the patent office, but not really the post office, that hypothesis was ultimately rejected. And later investigations showed it was more likely this carelessness and bad practice of storing ashes in a wooden box in the basement that actually led to the fire, not intentional arson. Now, former Superintendent Craig's requests to build a flame-resistant patent office really became a top priority. If you remember, J.D. Craig had, you know, while he, he had some really uh, uh, controversial opinions about patents and was apparently a terrible boss, he did really believe that the patent office needed to move into a more fire-resistant building. And so he had petitioned Congress to fund that. And in fact, Congress did. But it would take a while for that to get built. Most of the old patents that had been stored in the Blodgett Hotel were lost. And that would also prompt changes to how the patent office would store patents. And it meant that the office would require copies of patents to protect against another catastrophic loss in the future. So that you're not storing the one and only copy of a patent. Uh, in a single place. It's a bit hard to believe that no one bothered with copies up to that point, but I guess uh, until there's a disaster, there's not much incentive to protect yourself. Also, making a copy was not the easiest thing in the world necessarily um, at, at the time. So it, it could be a, a pretty time-consuming process if you don't have access to the like a printing press or something. And so uh, maybe that was part of it as well. Anyway, the office was able to restore around 2,800 old patents, uh, designating them with a number that was preceded by the letter X. This distinguished them from new patents that were being filed with the office under the 1836 revised law. So we do have a record of some of the patents between 1790 and 1836. And they're, like I said, they're designated as X and then a number. But again, it's just a, a fraction of all the patents that were received by the office leading up to 1836. I think there was something like more than 10,000 patents total. So, you know, between a fifth and a fourth of them survived and all the rest were destroyed. By the way, the office was actually able to restore patents mostly by talking to the inventors or patent holders who had filed for the patent in the first place to recreate their initial patent and their sketches and stuff like that. Um, they had to re remake them. So it wasn't like 
there was just a copy hanging around for most of these. It would take four years before the patent office's new digs would actually be ready. Most of the new building was made of stone and marble, and it was thought to be far safer than the Blodgett Hotel had been, at least with regard to fires. And for nearly four decades, it served as a decent but not perfect place for the patent office. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, the early practice with patents was that inventors were to include a model of their invention if possible, and models take up a lot of space. So it wasn't a perfect place for the patent office because there was no such thing uh, as a, an office that was accepting models, physical models that took up a lot of space. They would rapidly start to run out of storage space and they would have to you know, request things like an extension to the building or something along those lines. So uh, if you review the work of the commissioners who held the office from say 1840 onward to like 1877, you see a lot of requests for new construction work so that they can have more space to store things like models. But things would change in 1877. The office made sure to make copies of stuff uh, with the introduction of photography that included actually making photographs of the models. Uh, you know, Obviously, it's a much harder thing to make a copy of a model than it is a copy of a document. So Photographs were largely used as, instead of creating a copy. Obviously, if you made a copy of every single model, well, now you've just doubled the challenge of storing everything. So they would photograph the models rather than ask for uh, a replica of a model. Uh, but yeah, they they really changed their approach and made sure they had copies stored in different places so that should something like this happen again, it would not result in as big a disaster as the 1836 fire did. Uh, and this sets us up for the second big fire, which would happen on September 24th, 1877. We're coming up to the anniversary of that major fire of the U.S. Post Office, the second major fire. Before we get into any of that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsors. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed, and I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. 
That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with five good things. A new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. There's plenty to celebrate in March, and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Okay, we're back. So obviously between 1836 and 1877, there were a ton of different commissioners who led the patent office. Uh, Most of them only held the position for like a couple of years at most. Uh, But in 1877, the commissioner was a guy named Ellis Spear. He was a veteran of the Civil War on the Union side, I should add. Uh, He had also been a farmer and he loved classical literature. Uh, He had joined the patent office in 1865, right after the end of the Civil War. And by 1877, he found himself promoted to commissioner. And while his time as leader overall has sort of a a positive uh, uh, aspect to it, the 1877 fire is an obvious exception to that, right? It's not that it was his fault, but that was a a big, expensive catastrophe. So the fire seemingly started in the room that they were using to store the models. How it got started remains a mystery. So there are various hypotheses suggesting how the fire might have started. Uh, One suggests that some chemicals that were being stored in that room perhaps created really flammable fumes, and maybe there was even a case of spontaneous combustion, which is possible. That can happen. Others suggested that maybe one of the models had like a, a lens, an optical lens that perhaps focused some sunlight onto a flammable surface, and that's how the fire got started. So essentially like having a magnifying lens positioned just right so that when sunlight is coming through, uh, it's focused on a point that heats up and then bursts into flame. Maybe that's how it happened. Others said that, well, it was probably closer to what happened in 1836, that maybe the it was that the day was unseasonably chilly, because again, this happened in September, uh, not in December. And that because it was unseasonably chilly, some office workers, you know, set a fire in their office, like in a in a grate in order to keep the heat up. uh, And that this ended up creating sparks that set the fire. It's hard to say what it was. No one really knows. But whatever the cause, the fire quickly engulfed those models. Uh, Among them was a model of Eli Whitney's cotton gin, the only Uh, model that was produced for that patent, and that was completely destroyed by the fire. The fire claimed far more individual pieces than the fire that happened in 1836 because there had been 
more than 40 years of additional patents granted since then. So while the fire didn't destroy the whole building or anything like that, uh, there had been a lot of patents granted between 1836 and 1877. I mean, the, the pace of innovation had picked up considerably as the 19th century went on. All told, estimates put the fire's tally at uh, consuming around 80,000 models and 600,000 drawings attached to patent applications. But, and, and this is a key element, no patents were completely lost. Not a single one. They, they, there were some partial losses, but nothing was lost completely. So that meant the new processes were protecting those patents. The, the patent office did not find itself starting from nothing again. The preventive measures actually worked. The copies helped mitigate some of the problems that would follow. So back in 1836, when all of those patents were destroyed, it meant that inventors, patent holders, and their lawyers were able to argue that, no, really, they held the rights to a particular invention. And because the patents were gone, there was nothing to refer to, right? You couldn't go and see like, oh, did you actually file that patent? Because the patents didn't exist. So people could make false claims left, right, and center. And people with the real claim found themselves fighting for their rights in court, but they lacked the documentation to show that they actually had the authority to make that claim. So it was a really messy legal situation. A similar thing happened in 1877, but the copies and documentation were able to mitigate that a, a bit. Not totally, but a little bit. The monetary cost of the 1877 fire was by far much greater than the one that happened in 1836. However, the fact that the office lost none of the patents was a huge deal. So one change that ended up being the result of this fire is that the patent office deemed it was no longer necessary for inventors to include a model of their invention with their patent application. So until 1877, that had still been the custom, but the challenges of storing and caring for the models had just become too great as more applications were pouring in from inventors in the United States. So the patent office would no longer accept models of inventions from 1877 on. That's understandable. It's also kind of a bummer. It also meant that sometimes it was difficult to determine if a particular invention would work or not. Like with a model, you could at least take a slightly more educated guess as to whether or not the underlying functions of the invention would work. Without the model, when you're just looking at a two-dimensional sketch and then a list of specifications, it's a little more challenging. As I've mentioned in this show, patent law has changed a few times since the 19th century, but the intent largely remains the same. It's meant to provide protection and incentive for inventors, and in return, inventors share their work so that future generations can continue to benefit from their innovation and then build upon it further. And while it doesn't always work out that way, and issues like patent trolls can still become a real headache, in general... I think it's been a pretty good idea. Someone should probably patent it. Now, before I sign off, I wanted to remind y'all that I'm going to be at this year's iHeartRadio Music Festival at the House of Music that's happening this weekend on Friday and Saturday. I'll be recording in the iHeart Podcasts studio powered by Bose. Come by on Friday at 6 p.m. to the free House of Music outside T-Mobile Arena. I will see you there. 
And you can look out for my episode that I record there next week. It should be live on Monday. Also, to remind you of what the House of Music actually is, I can't wait to see this in person. I've been reading about it, and I'm I'm really <laughs> intrigued. So it's it's a selection of interactive exhibits. And these experiences that are in the House of Music are modeled after some of the artists that are performing at the music festival. Uh, and they include people like Kelly Clarkson on one side and Public Enemy on the other. I mean, it is a big spectrum. Uh, Fallout Boy has uh, a, a room in there. TLC has a room in there. Uh, not all of them are necessarily mixed reality experiences, but they're all interactive and they're meant to kind of encourage the joy of music and the the sharing of joy in music. So I'm really looking forward to seeing it for myself and to record in this special studio that Bose has worked with iHeartRadio to create. So again, this Friday at 6 p.m. in Las Vegas, Nevada, at the T-Mobile Arena, outside the T-Mobile Arena, you'll find the House of Music. That's where you're going to find me, the bald guy talking about technology. And uh, yeah, I hope to see y'all out there. And I hope you're well. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. CNN.